赤い炎は暖かく水平線に翻り光と使命を担い立つ三百万の兄弟は今や奴隷の手さたち自由のために戦わん Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. And today I have for you a fantastic guest. This is Prez of the Minyan podcast. Prez, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So happy、I'm、to have glad you. Glad to be having a fun conversation. Would you like to、uh, introduce yourself in whatever kind of way for my listeners? Yeah, so、um, I'm Prez,、uh, as we know by now.、Uh, I'm part of the Minion podcast, which is a, a Jewish anti Zionist podcast where we have g o t t e n a little off track and not exclusively covered Jewish、uh, anti Zionism. The last few have been mostly,、uh, you know, linked to it rather than going into like the history of Zionism. But we have some of those were、uh, explicitly Marxist Leninist. So we have some,、uh, some just generally fun episodes on imperialism, anti Semitism, and, and building communism in the past and the future.、Um, and this、resource. is kind of a preamble. Yeah. We have fun.、Um, we hope everyone enjoys it. And this episode is kind of a preamble for a,、uh, a piece on fascism.、Um, so I'm excited to, to get going. Yeah, very much along those lines,、uh, or, or not according to the lines, right? I mean, I think uh, uh, <laughs> it's great to hear you talk about just anything. And.、Uh, Maybe this is similar because we're going to be talking about Japanese、uh, right wing thought during the colonial period through the、uh, Pacific War, right? So, yeah, yeah. This,、uh, all of the literature that I read, especially someone called、uh, Nikos Polansis,、hmm. he wrote like three books on fascism and how it's made up. And then he's like, well, none of this applies to Japan because I don't know anything about it. I only know、oh, about、well. uh, Germany and、mm. Italy. <laughs>、mm. It's like in the first couple pages.、Uh, yeah,、um, that's too bad. I mean, it's. <clears throat> I know. Yeah, that has to do with the field, the state of, you know, we were, we were starting to talk earlier about sort of my whole deal, right? You know, like I.、Um, What were we saying? So,、uh, my podcast, I'm a pre modernist, right? And so, I'm not the sort of person who normally would be talking about communism and fascism. And so, when I had my sort of political awakening、uh, from being a shit lib,、uh, right around the time that I got tenure, I thought, well, fuck it. I have tenure. So, I need to、uh, do something. And focusing on a lot of pre capitalist, you know, the 5,000 year world system, whatever, maybe the 50,000 year、mm-hmm. world system, or, you know, we go deep into the past. And, and this is where I came up with sort of deep history of class struggle. I had read、uh, Dawn of Everything、uh, Against the Grain, Society Against the State,、uh, 
uh, these kinds of anthropology and archaeology that is very, um, you know, showing the ways in which class society is only uh, takes up 5% of human history or even less, depending on how you count uh, this sort of thing. Uh, and then I was sort of like, um, I had quit Facebook and I'd got off social media uh, when I realized I was becoming a communist. And I realized, oh, wait, you know, I'm connected to, <laughs> I have eagerly, I've been this eager little puppy connecting to all kinds of people that uh, I shouldn't be talking to about this or posting. Yeah, the uh, internet's can... the only community we have anymore. <laughs> Doesn't it suck? I lost uh, so many friends, but I guess they weren't friends. Um, and <laughs> yeah, uh, and got into the real life in a new way. So I can't recommend that enough, actually. Uh, but then getting back on Twitter and stuff, uh, you know, I would edge into the field, right? Like my old colleagues and mm -hmm. stuff and sort of realize, oh, this is what they're. And like, now I know some things about these modern topics instead of just being a, a grad student, just furiously white knuckling it through trying to finish my dissertation. Anytime I hear anything <laughs> about modern stuff, I just like put my hands over my ears. I don't have time to think yeah. about that, right? Yeah, uh, that is. Well, now I do. Right now, I right. This is <laughs> yes. I I very much sympathize, uh, and uh, inshallah, I really hope you get uh, this what you deserve, what everyone deserves. Uh, this you. kind of space to do this, uh, this kind of thinking, right? But as I was starting to do that and learn about these things, you know, I've witnessed things like an exchange between, I will anonymize a little bit because I'm speaking behind a pseudonym <laughs> here as well. Uh, but uh, the author of a book on uh, the underworld of uh, Imperial Japan and the author of a forthcoming, I think, uh, book about a certain kind of very much Reinhard Galen kind of figure in japan hmm. uh these two uh, who you i mean they uh, you know I, I i still haven't read their books and i i should i'm sure uh but they were having a discussion about whether ralph nader ruined uh america or Oh, um, no. Like, how bad was it? Like, basically everything would have been fine if only Ralph Nader had not uh, been too far to the left or whatever, right? Running if he didn't end. split the Democrat vote, the worst argument ever. Yeah, Al Gore would have just saved yeah. everything. Like, yeah. all problems clearly post-date that. <laughs> As if the election <laughs> wasn't fixed from the start. These are people that... <laughs> Well, I, mean, I don't I, I think they nudge. I'm not sure. It looks like they nudge real hard in certain directions and the Brooks Brothers riot and there was all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. Mm. They, right. And then with uh, Trump losing to Biden last time, you got a little window into that, too. Like, did they feel like they could nudge it yeah. and make it? And they kind of decided no. Right. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I that's try and the stay kind away of from field. academic discourse. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have to, I, I have to say this, you know, I mean, I, well, you should just um, become a Rishat Zorga of uh, shitlibs, though. Honestly, <laughs> like, you should just, like, pretend to be the, the shittiest shitlib that you can be until you get tenure. 
and then you then you oh, just that's... heal turn. What my favorite thing is all of the yeah. people who do that, but they actually end up buying into it and they like buy yeah. into it even more to try and get like the blue check mm. on Twitter so that that somehow gets them a higher chance of getting tenure. There's um, always more but... hurdles, right? There's always more oh, yeah. like ap- approval that you can get from the system. Yeah. I wonder and how these getting, people come they, to be. Uh, honestly, I think it's just like the the willingness to completely disintegrate your soul or critical thinking capacities. Well, they um, break you down so hard and during grad school too. And, yeah. and that oh, that yeah. scarcity of jobs is has a function. Right. Yeah, the the whole precarious proletarian proletarianization of academia mm-hmm. more and more and more. Yeah, you know, they already weren't giving a great space for left leaning people, but now it's mm-hmm. just pure competition. There's no um, like the new school is practically a neoliberal institution, and that was founded by uh, what's her name? She she's the the Nazi sympathizer. Oh, um, a lot Hannah of liberals Arendt. in America actually were. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, Gabriel Rockhill. Gabriel Rockhill, who who should always come up in a discussion like this. Uh, mm-hmm. His new book, right? It just got refused by the French publisher, but he, because he was revealing things about like Hannah Arendt and other folks. Uh, so Horkheimer and and fucking who ben, uh adorno adorno actually yeah. uh right he his latest uh, yeah. uh, podcast appearance which i forget even where it was um it wasn't east as, as a podcast it was after that but he no, it was more recent than that yeah oh maybe historically actually maybe it was esha maybe and he tells the story of this he's now going to rewrite it in english and publish it in english because his french publisher pulled out uh, and broke the contract because <laughs> they got uncomfortable but he was revealing yeah. he says this uh adorno and horkheimer had all this purse strings all this budget to bring people over and they deliberately slowballed walter benjamin on his way out of nazi germany and likely got him killed helped to get him killed Oh, I didn't know that part. I attended one of his talks where he was talking about the, you know, the nefarious money strings that kind of work all of these people like puppets, which Hmm. uh, I'm sympathetic Mm -hmm. to to a certain point, but I didn't know that they ended up like accidentally getting Benjamin killed because he was probably the best of them. He could have been, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, no, they could have gotten him out way sooner. And they very much, Adorno, I think in particular, was very, very suspicious of his closeness to Brecht. Uh, right. Oh, oh, fuck off. Can I yeah. swear on this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No problem. So, yeah, That's I wonder ridiculous. about the, you're more of a, you you deal with more modern things, I'm sure. And you're not a literature scholar. Yeah. Right. So I, I think. Oh, no, absolutely more. Not. Right. Like that's the place where their uh the radar is on. And that's why I got uh kind of under the radar perhaps. Mm-hmm. But um th- th- I wonder about the origin stories 
of these figures who are no longer on my Twitter feed, but when uh, seeing them sort of go back and forth about Ralph Nader, like fucking Plato and Aristotle in the painting over here, you know? Oh, God. <laughs> these are people who study, I, I like, like, the Japanese Empire, yeah. study this stuff and know how much this stuff is fixed, which... Um, like, I think that's part of the yeah. problem of academia, Last too, power. and we can kind of fold this into fascism uh, to mm. bring it back. But, like, mm. all of these people are smart. Like, I know, like, George, but this New York City, guys. Um, yeah. Good atmosphere. There's the whole Trump went to wherever George Bush went to Yale and, yeah. like, flunked his way through through his dad's money and all of that stuff but like most of the people in academia are intelligent to some degree Mm -hmm. and even if they aren't and there are people like emily oster um who is just saying like we should reopen schools with no restrictions but and this was back at the uh, Mm. last year um like they still create they still create the the knowledge and reinforce ideology and shape ideology. This is the whole Russian idea about intellectuals and then why we need organic intellectuals who aren't necessarily affiliated with universities or whatever ruling structure there is because all of these people who, you know, even if they're supposedly left-leaning, they're only left-leaning when it comes to domestic politics. There's no real uh counter hegemonic or no other attempts to like be anti-zionist within academia if you do you're never going to get tenure and we saw that with norman mm. finkelstein um yeah or steven salaita and too. like i didn't know about him isn't so, he the one that we got two his pieces. offer like rescinded to uh the one was it um you Illinois? Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. And he's now a school bus driver and he still has a Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, Palestinian. Guy. And, and this is part of the problem too, that yeah. like your your social media presence will dictate whether or not you get a job or keep a job, even if it's not in academia. But um like, yeah. you know, part of the competition, even if you're ten like I've hmm. They'll either reject you from tenure because they don't want to have the uh yeah the risk of Cornell West never had tenure. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And you know, I yeah, think I have he, a lot of respect for him by now. Yeah. I think he's great and I but I think he's great within the confines of academia. And even then, yeah, he didn't get tenure. Wow. Um they would hire him as as like a, a an assistant mm. professor who is not on the tenure track, so they never ha- even have a chance um, right. at multiple good universities. And he is too radical for that, um, right? Because, like, I mean, I'm I'm young. Uh, mm. I started grad school young, so I'm like I'm still not even. Wow, 30. that's good. And <laughs> I'm hoping to be one of the of people life, huh? who get the PhD before they turn thirty, but we'll see. Mm. 
Um, yeah. But like I, I grew up in the invasion of Iraq. Like I don't really remember 9-11 besides that I got out of school and I didn't know what that really meant. Um, oh. And going to elementary school in the u.s like they had these like kids time magazine like time magazine kids and they would say like stuff about why we needed to go invade iraq like there would be a cartoonish Mm -hmm. version of saddam and i'm sure you could look up this stuff um oh yeah yeah i see that on social media sometimes yeah um we're getting my my group of uh gen z people are getting old enough to start reminiscing i guess Um, wow but like all like there was a huge amount of knowledge production and creation about why being in the middle east for even longer is a good thing um Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's rehashing all of the old orientalist stereotypes that saeed laid out and has been you know we stopped i think there is still a department of oriental studies but like we have the school of mm-hmm. soas in the uk school yeah. of oriental and african studies it, it's right. still in the name um yeah, yeah but like we have this huge knowledge production starting after i i don't know i guess reagan that's trying to justify the u.s reasserting its uh empire in the world with the collapse of the soviet union it's the whole francis fukuyama the end of history or the the whole clash of civilizations Mm -hmm. narrative by huntington yeah Um, well and now they're pivoting into great power competition and it was amazing to see with the ukraine invasion just the lockstep uh heel turn yeah bam everyone russia is the greatest evil in the world china is the greatest evil uh and you see people are better and better trained to really yeah. turn on a dime here no matter what you think and, too it's yeah and i you know whatever you might think about uh lockdowns uh vaccine uh mandates all of these different levels right uh you have seen people pivot on that on a dime you know, oh yeah, yeah, we have to all uh, lockdowns. Oh no, lockdowns actually fuck them. It's no, no, no public health measures at all are necessary now. Public health measures are actually authoritarian. Um, it's mm-hmm. it, there's a whole movement that any kind of government intervention in daily life is, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, crushing well, so the I soul. Would be... It's an attempt. Yeah, yeah. To I would be someone that neoliberalism um, certainly sees. Uh, masks, you know, obviously are are good. Um, here in Japan, it was a nice kind of mix, although kind of muddled, really. You know, they had we've had proper lockdowns, uh, which was mm-hmm. nice and stuff, but no kind of vaccine hysteria quite on a certain level. So that's actually really nice. I appreciate that. That must be nice, you yeah. Know? And I actually think that um, the you know, the idea that you have to like scan your Vax pass every 50 feet to enter a cafe and stuff. This is a little weird, you know, and I'm glad that that didn't happen because uh, I do think that there's possibility there for some serious abuse. Uh, and that is power oh, that yeah. we shouldn't be. We should have a class analysis of that. There are class politics, you know, of uh, requiring yeah. some of 
you know, and th and this new the novel biotech like CRISPR and stuff that can really kind of change what proteins your body produces uh, on the fly and stuff, you know, without any kind of I mean, from a left wing perspective, uh, class that has class uh, politics to it, uh, oh, which yeah. I wouldn't yeah, want to neglect, especially that yeah. all of this is corporate owned. Um yeah, it's so not the York, dictatorship there's... of the proletariat fucking doing it, you know, and maybe you can argue that's what's no. happening in China. Um, and if that's the case, then, yeah, I mean, that's that's good. But yeah, uh, so in, in New York yeah. and New York is one of the quote unquote better states, mm. we rolled out a, uh, you know, a Vax pass, but mm -hmm. it was like built by IBM and stored a bunch mm. of your data. And mm. Um, it required a smartphone. There was no way you could like print out a certificate saying that, mm. you know, your vaccines are up to date or when you got them or anything, unless you have that paper, shitty paper CDC card. Um, yeah, wow. So just like they were, they were requiring that to get into stadiums. Mm. Um, yeah. And just anyone who doesn't have a smartphone is just fucked which is a oh, lot wow. of the population here because it's there's a lot yeah. of uh, immigrants and mm. the rent yeah. is so high almost everyone is uh, working poor at this point. yeah we're this but, will get um, into our definition of fascism and so on too right like you know there's a certain kind of libertarianism i was just reading this morning about uh one of the many revolutionary movements against spanish monarchical monarchical control in south america hmm. uh, a certain peruvian um sort of uh, right-wing revolutionary what should you call it it's it i mean it's sort of similar to the american revolution there, there are all these revolutions of spanish settlers who want to become feudal lords in their own right and they'd like declare war on <laughs> the habsburg monarchy <laughs> and go yeah you know go ham uh yeah, so like, yeah, there's uh, this liber a certain kind of libertarianist settler libertarianism. Uh, yeah, is a, yeah, and... is a thing to watch out for. But then on the other hand, yeah. I have a an episode about this, uh, which I dropped about the time of the Canadian trucker protests, and so on. Mm. And because I've been getting into Lenin kind of deeply, um, for the first time, uh, and you know, I was listening to that audiobook of uh Lenin Recon rediscovered by Lars Lee which mm. was on Cosmonaut right and in that he has all these different quotes about you know his our, his object there is to show that Lenin cared about freedom and he cared about democracy all along and wasn't the wow. this old narrative about him becoming an authoritarian at a certain point is is false uh as and this is the new consensus. all the social democrat what... like yeah, yeah i have i have some problems with cosmonaut <laughs> like we're me too we're trying me to too. rehab I... lenin who the didn't kind really of... need to be rehabbed oh uh, yeah i don't uh, you know the lars lee um i i i with them i would be a little like i'm squeamish about their I would hope that they're not just sheepdogging people into DSA, which is an obvious sheepdog mm -hmm. into the Democratic Party at this point. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. So, so far, the only yeah. good cosmonaut I've heard was uh, recent. They had on a 
group of Iranian labor activists who are just a hardline ML uh, going over what the hell is happening there. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think it was good because they weren't, you know, borderline social Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. um, exactly. anyway, to get back to yeah. it. Well, so, but I, what I actually wanted to quote, though, is um, Engels, Kautsky, and Lenin uh, happened to mm -hmm. be quoted in all of this stuff, you know, talking about uh, bourgeois freedoms. And Th in mm -hmm. this way, their position is very similar to ours today. We are losing bourgeois freedoms, uh, right? That in itself is not, you know, that's not our goal is, is, is bourgeois freedoms. But all of these thinkers, Engels, Kautsky, Lenin, uh, not just thinkers, but organizers, revolutionaries, uh, all agreed. And they used this, this series of uh, metaphors of light and air for the proletariat to organize um it's not possible to organize how are you going to organize if you have to scan a smartphone every 50 feet uh to move around mm -hmm. and workers can't get into a cafe workers can't you know what are you gonna uh physically speaking this makes it way 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 harder to organize just mm -hmm. basic stuff you know um and these re revolutionaries were all extremely uh passionate about that and that they even say like even if the Liz is Lenin, uh, even if the bourgeoisie were to scurry under the skirts of reaction and i.e. Uh, rescind bourgeois freedoms, the proletariat should defend bourgeois freedoms because it's too important to be left up to the bourgeoisie. Right. Uh, yeah. So but I mean, at the base, bourgeois freedoms are the starting point of proletarian freedom, um, like mm -hmm. freedom of. You know, I mean, this is the whole, uh, you know, philosophical and, and historiography uh, attempt to say that everything grows out of, you know, like Marx is an inherent, uh, you know, consequence of the Enlightenment and all of that stuff. But like Enlightenment ideals are bourgeois and they're, you know, the, the, the kind of vague idea of freedom. And that is, you know, the whole point of communism is... Um, you know, human freedom and whatever that means. And it just so happens that, you know, there's some alignment that like you should be able to practice whatever religion you want. And that's not necessarily bad. Um, I'm going to bring Colossus even, back uh, into it. Yeah. 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 Oh, go ahead. What were you going to go? Oh, I was just going to say that I, I yeah. am going to bring Colossus back into this because, um, you know, I don't know if, anyone knows his story it's kind of really sad but nope. he was an ml nope. um he was a he's from greece and he is is an ml who ended up spending all of his time in paris uh watching you know the whole fascist thing happen in greece and then also seeing the uh the you know Liber quote unquote liberation of Greece from fascism into some kind of social democracy. And um, he has this really weird turn. So, all of the books and writings that I'm going to be referencing um, were when he was like, he would write multiple times that social democracy doesn't work. He, he didn't quite say the, you know, the overused Stalin quote that 
social democracy is the left wing of fascism, but he he would say that social democracy won't get us anywhere. And then he like pivoted like total about face that social democracy is the only way to succeed. Um, oh. And then he, uh, you know, content warning, he jumped off of uh, uh roof <laughs> and, oh. and uh, you know, hmm. uh, ended his life. Um, so we didn't actually really get mm-hmm. to see him kind of work through his analysis greater than a couple of papers. Um, mm-hmm. But in his study, he has three main books that I'm in love with. Uh, it's like contemporary classes and capitalism, political mm-hmm. classes, and and uh, I, sh- I should get them the names. One of them is literally so just So how, how do you spell uh, his name? International. Uh, how do you spell P- his name? Now I have to type it. So I P-O-U-L-A-N-T... Z-A-S. Nikos Polansis. Z-I-S. Now, there we go. Now I can probably find it. Yep. Okay. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, he has like a, a series of books, Fascism and Dictatorship, hmm. Classes in Contemporary Capitalism, and hmm. Political Power and Social Classes. They, I, I like to think of them as a trilogy. Uh-huh. And he also thinks of them as a trilogy. And in it, he kind of outlines. Um, he's he's very Althusserian in, in uh, mm-hmm. you know, the first one of these, which I think was uh, classes in contemporary capitalism, but I'm very bad at remembering years. Um, okay. So he tried to dis- distance himself from Gramsci, but he ended up, he ends up being really reliant on him. And in this trilogy he goes through um the class character and the idea ideological character of fascism Mm -hmm. and he ends up coming up with um you know depending on how you want to uh write it down either four or six ideological elements of fascism and two of them are which we can see very obviously today is a um, a sense of deep romanticism for something that is supposedly lost Mm -hmm. and he calls it petty bourgeois ideology um which Mm -hmm. is the over focus on these kind of bourgeois freedoms that we had and some Mm -hmm. kind of power fetishization so it's you know and the the back end of that is the fourth thing is meritocracy so the the people who are running the state aren't the ones who are doing it right. That's why we need to be in charge. And it's inherently, uh, you know, anti-capitalist in the vague sense, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, what kind of capitalism do we live under? We live under monopoly capitalism. So it it's, uh, you know, petty bourgeois ideology mm-hmm. is that we want to be the ones in charge. Um, if it wasn't for Walmart buying up, and uh, destroying all of the small town businesses um, or, you know, in in Japan, Ratukin or whoever um, eating up all of the market and running all these small businesses out, we would be doing fine. The economy would be healthy and dynamic. And we hear this uh, pretty regularly too, about how, uh, you know, usually from a left progressive critique, but also, strangely mm-hmm. enough sometimes for a right critique that 
you know, these companies are getting too powerful. It's stifling um, our freedom yeah, of speech, can... our freedom of movement. You hear this a lot with the tech companies, right? That's what you were kind of mm. hinting at. There are these jokes um, of like uh, joke accounts of right accidentally left wing <laughs> moments or something, you know, yeah. some lady is saying like, oh, we got to get corporate power out of there. They're communism. And <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah wait, we should abolish the corporations. The poli- yeah. Oh, hey, that's right. Um, <laughs> abolish their power. And then. Right. Sanagi magumyon pokpung che nomgo. Uh, an interesting way to complicate that, though, is to realize that enlightenment thought is demonstrably stolen from indigenous thought. There was no concept of freedom oh, in Europe. Yeah at all until you know this is in like the dawn of everything and stuff kind of thinkers like candy ronk right the when dot um political statesman uh goes actually to europe and we can trace the uh lineage of people talking hearing him talking about his ideas of uh literally freedom is what they talk about more uh and the missionaries are just you know aghast because they come in and try to talk about hey what so there's this god right and he's you know he's like a king right like you have a king and he tells you everything what to do and if you don't do it he kills you uh no we uh we don't have a king like that we have a council and uh you know any leaders you have to like persuade everyone right and they're they're free to like say no and right yeah uh yeah no it actually comes from that so i mean that's part of the puzzle as well and then i think the more spanish chivalric romance i read the more i feel like and and that too you know garthy rodriguez de montalbo lived in one of the last uh madina de campo one of the last um sort of islamic market towns and Mm -hmm. he was very close to the spanish monarchs and his writing mm-hmm. Amadis de Gaula and uh, Las Sergas de Esplandian. Uh, Esplandian has the, the first appearance of the name California for an imaginary island of, <laughs> of black Amazons <laughs> who come and help because they heard that all the world was besieging Christendom and destroying it. And so they came to Constantinople to help all the infidels to, to attack and just then, oh, Esplandian, yeah. yeah, Esplandian and Amadis came from the farthest reaches of Britannia and Ireland, and you know, so <laughs> Britain and Ireland have this role in Spanish uh, romance, right? But like, yeah. so that's really, yeah, it's complicated. But it's really mostly Anthony Munday's translations into English in the 17th um, and 18th century, right? That that yeah, get yeah. that get that virus into the mind deep into the mind of the anglo psyche uh and that's why that's what lord of the rings is it's lord of the rings is just that 
updated for the Cold War. <laughs> and the evil hordesmen of the East are just, you know, the Soviet Union, the Red Army in that. And, you know, it, well, it that, always people. Lord of the... Yeah. Yeah. Lord of the Rings was written before that. And the only reason I'm pushing back there is because uh, whatever is named Tolkien. Um, yeah. This is actually going to spin into something cohesive. Tolkien wrote it. He was he was a literature scholar in the early 1900s before there was even the kind of Cold War. But uh, and he wrote that or the the even earlier 1900s. But um, funnily enough, uh, you know, he was and this will always get me. He was the English literature professor for uh, the late great Stuart Hall. um, Who if you don't know who Stuart Hall is and you're listening, you should really check out all of his work. He um, really focused on ideology and the importance of media and representation and not in like a postmodern way. He was very tied to Gramsci and and Marxist uh, thought. Um, And he... Did Tolkien influence um, his, his outlook? I would imagine so. I haven't read anything by him of like, this is what Tolkien imparted upon me. But um, Tolkien, from what I've read, was one of the professors who really kind of pushed him first um, into like literary analysis. Uh, I think he was too politically motivated to just kind of be, you know, only be someone who examines... uh, the interaction of language and things uh, through an academic lens. So he talks about uh, like Saucere and Saucere's ideas on how that and how it relates to knowledge production, um, specifically in the frame of like, this is how we organize uh, mm-hmm. new ideas. But um, he left a couple threads at the time of his death. And one, um, the major one was his idea of what he called authoritarian populism. Um, oh, okay. Where he first wrote it in either the late 60s or early 70s. Um, and it kind of started a whole fight in, in his area called state theory, which is, you know, just, just a subfield of political science or political sociology or you know, historic, mm. whatever section of history that focuses on the state. Um, yeah. His whole thing was that was his second label for neoliberalism. And the whole idea was he was looking at that. So this was written in the, in the Thatcherism. Era. Okay. Yeah. So his whole thing was like, he was based in the UK. He's from a, uh, I don't want to get where he's from wrong. So I'm just going to say it was a Caribbean uh, Jamaica former colony I don't think he was yeah. from Jamaica I want to say Guyana but I don't think that wow. was he's yeah he's born his uh, Wikipedia says he's born in Jamaica Kingston oh, okay so I got that I was right I was going to get it wrong um but he was looking at Thatcherism as say that again gotta trust yourself yeah <laughs> you got it. um so he was looking at Thatcherism as a very weird political phenomenon where um you know everything thatcher did and you know i'm using thatcher as a stand-in for neoliberalism 
Um, uh-huh. Everything required by Thatcher to reshape the economy uh, was actually very brutal. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it was destroying whatever was there in terms of social democracy. And, you know, we have Reagan and the U.S. doing the same thing. You yeah. know, there's different levels of social democracy. We don't really have to get into like the difference between American Keynesianism and and uh, you know Swedish social democracy oh, yeah. and all so of that. But you know, these were dismantled, and they were, um, you know, these were whole state apparatuses that had to be completely redone, even if it was in a haphazard way. Um, so mm-hmm. in that sense, he called it authoritarian, and he called it populist because you know. Um. Yeah, there was. There well, was in the U.S., you had like support. the John Birch Society, mm-hmm. making sure that which when neo, uh, which was neo-fascist. Yeah, making sure that when all the farmers went bankrupt after uh, the one big contract to to sell grain to the Soviet Union was rescinded by Carter, I think. Um, oh God! And they. Uh, they were waiting to organize all of that nascent energy, right? All the spontaneous discontent. Mm-hmm. They made sure that it all went to the far right, right? Which is another mm-hmm. lesson for today. Exactly. That's another thing. Reading Lenin, I'm kind of amazed that he comes out and says, you know, in arguing against the economists and what is to be done, he's very much, <laughs> very much speaks against this whole discourse of like, who are the real people that we should be expressing our symbolic Twitter support for? Uh, who's the mm-hmm. real working class? He's just talking about you need to propagandize to every class, every sector of society. Give them your version for why their life will be better under communism. Right. Um, Stuart Mm -hmm. Hall seems like a really fascinating uh, figure. I had never heard of him. Um, He's great. I don't know what his relation is to Tolkien, but um, regarding Tolkien, I just wanted to say that people usually say just based on the fact that he studied Beowulf, like people posit, oh, it's somehow based on Beowulf. but no, if you read Spanish romance, it is the exact same story. There is an old capital. We live in a ruined world, ruined by the hordes of evil and evil races. And uh, we have Definitely to take it back. We a... are these little random guys, you know, these little hobbits yeah. out in a wild yeah. uh, Western European uh, wilderness. <laughs> and we need to go back to the, you know, there's this sophisticated but decadent capital city of Constantinople mm-hmm. uh it's mm-hmm. exactly Constantinople and those those Christians in the east in Constantinople they've given up hope you know there's this whole plot about the the regent or the the vizier or whoever is is sitting on the throne in place of the king uh in Lord of the Rings he's like conniving with all these bureaucrats and and just paper pushers and they don't understand that you know, we got to get out the big guns and uh, I, you can tie that to um, Spanish captivity literature, too, of which Cervantes wrote a lot where, you know, mm-hmm. you get people take in the captivity literature. There's all of this kind of anxiety about like, yeah, we went into the Ottoman Empire and like everybody's living pretty peacefully there. Actually, we met these Christians there that are like, eh, it's all right. We just pay our little jizya and uh please don't come around here with your crusader stuff we're fine thanks (laughs) right just chill yeah i mean i just looked um and aside from the whole academic path 
Tolkien had. Uh, I didn't know exactly when he was born. Like he was in his twenties, which would have put him as a doctoral student. Um, he was in his twenties when the Ottoman Empire still existed. <laughs> no, wow. Yeah, he fought um, in so World like, War One, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. not like he's doing some kind of far removed. Um, romantic callback to to the tropes in uh you know all of this literature you're referencing that is like, you know positive depictions of the crusade and all of that stuff he was uh you know the ottoman empire was seen as this decadent dying mm -hmm. uh empire and the whole thing yeah. about ataturk was that he reinvigorated and modernized he was the great modernizer of uh turkey um oh, that's so, cool i don't know much about that uh but then what? you have the existence i don't know much about ataturk but um mm. so that's cool to learn uh the soviet union then exists of course right after world mm -hmm. war one and so then the big you know enemy to the east is the soviet yeah. union Right. During World War Two, it, it sort of switches to become the Nazis briefly after they start going after uh, Anglo oil possessions and things, you know. Yeah. That's when they really decided. Same thing they... with Japan. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Uh, yeah. We're speaking of which. Right. Um, you know, Kitaiki reading this. He's maybe the, the most major <clears throat> uh, right wing figure. But also looking at Asahi Heigo and Gondo Seikyo, those two, there is not too much in there that is not just boilerplate Sakdem stuff, I thought. Mm. What do you think? Like reading that, you know, we have Gondo Seikyo especially has Taoist utopian ideals of social organization. Um. A, a state could exist forever only under agrarian communalism. He has these kind of ideas of equality of primitive commun community. Uh, yeah. Right. And they very critical of the bourgeoisie, right? The protection of private fortunes mm -hmm. is really established on the principle of property rights. There are these groups that mm -hmm. are allied with one another through marriage. The nation's military affairs so are supported by means of the privileged class of military alone. And then he's going uh, in a direction of like universal conscription, having like a militarized kind of society <laughs> that will guarantee uh, a kind of equality, right? Yeah, coming out the other end. I'm not too familiar with these. Uh, I, I guess I'm kind of like Palantis in that sense that I only have a. Me a either. I just read this. Of Japan. Uh, so for the reader, what we've prepared for this is chapter 44 of the volume two of the Sources of Japanese Tradition series on Columbia University Press, I think. Right. And that has just these little selections. I, too, don't know much. Uh, I mean, I knew who Kitaiki was, but I'm I was really interested mm -hmm. to actually read some of him. And uh, so I only have what's here. Right as well but going from what's here it just looks like standard sockdam shit and even kitaiki yeah. he's talking about yeah we're gonna have somehow it's gonna be our revolution is gonna be really egalitarian because the the army will make sure that the bourgeoisie cannot like fuck it up 
and we're going to set up a bicameral legislature and i mean it just sounds like american democracy kind of the historically non-biased military ranks (laughs) yeah famously (laughs) um you'll always get a fair deal from them yeah i i feel like um you know just having kind of paid attention to this stuff a little bit and and applying that to my own you know very poor knowledge of japan and by poor i mean very you know I'm, i might know more than other people but i don't know a lot um, in general i would in, in, i want to encourage international scholars to discard uh i would like to deflate the the kind of weebish uh sense of yeah proprietary like territory that uh a japan <laughs> specialists would tend to set up you know oh you yeah. couldn't possibly understand yeah. the esoteric uh, details of this no no it's it's a fascist country like i i would come down on the side of yeah if you follow the money if you look at the class structures here it's very similar mm-hmm. and it's illuminating as far as general patterns because the same sorts of things yeah. do play well, out yeah, that's well. I was trying to downplay it so I I don't like uh, oversell myself. Oh um, uh, well, yeah. But yeah, part of the reason I've become so interested in in fascism in Japan is because it's you know, I think there's an argument to be made that neoliberalism is kind of a neo-fascism, and I am increasingly interested in that argument and finding out, you know, mm. exploring that more. Um, hmm. but to do that, we, I need to look at the third country of the, you know, the three fascist regimes that have existed already. Um, you know, hmm. there's of course, um, you know, Black Panther Party members who in the seventies and sixties, I'm thinking specifically of George hmm. Jackson, who wrote a book about how America was fascist from the start. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I disagree with that just because I subscribe to kind of Gramsci's analysis of fascism and you know even Trotsky's analysis is uh fine enough but with Gramsci Mm -hmm. that Palantis builds off of um Mm -hmm. they're defining fascism as a relation between the state and monopoly capital um Mm -hmm. and you know Gramsci was unfortunately uh not able to make it out of prison so he couldn't really clarify that um, yeah. So Palancis did, I think, a pretty good job. Um, but you know, either way, okay. they they talk uh, about how you know fascism is essentially when the state needs to um, kind of be the champion of monopoly capital, and at the same time have to mm. suppress uh, small capital, petty bourgeois. And also mm. uh, feudal remnants that exist, because um, yeah, uh, in the 1940s and before that, you know, uh, Gramsci was writing in the 20s and 30s. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Italy was. Uh, he wrote something called the Southern Question, which was all about how the proletariat are not going to win over, you know, Italy as the nation state that it was unless they ally themselves with the peasantry that are in the south mm. um and you know that that and there are peasants in the north too so like most of the 
uh, most of Italy was peasantry in the 1920s, uh, part of uh, Mussolini's whole uh, ah. shtick was that he's going to bring economic industrialization and prosperity to these um, poor, disaffected soldiers who lost their colonies in World War One. Um, and to do that, we need to have a strong authoritarian government that, you know, kind of suppresses the the desires and needs of the large landowners or doesn't mm-hmm. liquidate the large landowners, but still kind of places them at a subservient level to capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. yeah so I, I like I, that idea. I, I like that side of it. some ideas of Japan, yeah. Yeah, I like that side I of it. And then, but then about what you were talking earlier. Yeah. Um, I would just let me put in you were bring up earlier, you were talking about the way in which uh, it sort of does also maybe comes from some kind of genuine critique of the bourgeoisie coming from the middle class. So it seems to have yeah. these two sides to it, right? That's always been I'm tr- yeah. I'm still struggling with that myself. But in I Japan, mean, Grant, so I, yeah, no, go for it. Yeah, no, you were going to say in Japan, right? Oh, I was going to say, uh, you know, Japan seems to be the missing puzzle link uh, just because, uh, you know, we I hear about the Zaibatsu. That's mm-hmm. that's Japan, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, because I sometimes uh, yeah. forget the word. Uh, like yeah. I hear about the Zaibatsu um, and, you know, that is kind of a very interesting monopoly mm-hmm. capital formation that we didn't exactly see in um, in Europe. And I think it's unique, I suppose. But I, think, I mean it's very state capitalist um, in a way. It's very it has a lot of yeah. state support, right? And it, and in the post war yeah. the the Korean Chebol, which is the exact same word, mm-hmm. um continues, right? And are a big part of the very hard right Korean South Korean state. Yeah. So I mean the that I guess that's kind of the heart of it that um, you know, fascism is state capitalism in that it prioritizes uh, you know, regulation in the loosest sense of the word. That um, you know, it suppresses all mm-hmm. all the workers. It it uh, does whatever it needs to to you know support monopoly capital actually functioning the way that it wants to function which is to eat everything up yeah um here's another definition i'd like to put on the table too uh a lot of the time well so there's the idea too that maybe i I like this also is fascism is when the capitalist class realizes oh shit we might really not like communism might really happen (laughs) essentially uh and if that's the case we're just going to kill everyone like or you know or also like you know this can be expressed in in the formulation of like uh, oh the world is too corrupt all these uh you know dimension mm-hmm. have have gotten too much uh power and we need a reset we need to just uh you know even like hg wells you can trace so far back in bourgeois uh literature the the image of like i mean the idea for the nuclear bomb comes from this mm-hmm. desire for a, a a reset and get rid of all the working class and just you know we'll start over with only the best people who will emerge out of the bunker you know yeah 
Yeah, I'm gonna, An old I'm idea. gonna call back to Palancis, who's the the whole nostalgia and meritocracy, mm-hmm. and, and the kind of, uh, you know, old bourgeois even feudal belief that um, the state needs to be run by the right people, and the economy is only prosperous if the right people are running it. And you know, these mm-hmm. these are all very vague, um, ideas, which is why they get so easily. Uh, adopted by the right and the left, um, mm. especially social demo- social democrats, I guess on the left. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I I don't think the definition you put is necessarily like I don't think most every definition that most people try and do for fascism has seemed to be like this is the single one. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder think if that it's necessary though to our yeah well mm. I think that traces mm. back to our academic training but I think they're all yeah. part of the wider definition of what fascism is so you have the ideological aspect which you just touched on and we're kind of going into and then we have the the economic aspect that is the whole relation between the state and monopoly capital so. You know, mm. there's some reaction when, you know, the the working forces start to get some kind of class consciousness. Yeah. And I know the Japanese state was really repressive. Um, yeah. Like and it, I, things didn't hardly get a chance to get started. And they developed yeah. very quickly forms of brainwashing mm-hmm. that uh, the... Mm-hmm the Nazis didn't have and Americans only learned and began to imitate maybe after the war, arguably. Uh, But they were able to brainwash people through this, this thing called Tenko. Um, They would hold them and show them all this writing of other diaristic writing of other people who had renounced. Uh, You know, it's it, you can connect this to the, the anti-Christian inquisition actually. Um, as mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm not particularly invested in Christianity myself, but uh, you can see the same pattern actually. Those institutions and those techniques. Uh, it was understood all, all the way back in the 17th century that it's much better to get someone to renounce publicly and then make them write a book about why they renounced and and why it's bad, <laughs> right? And this is exactly yeah. What I they mean, do. that has a very yeah yeah yeah. That you have to read that powerful right? ideological effect. Yep. Yeah, and writing the um, your man, uh, the one scholar who uh, wrote a book on this, right, was on uh, Against Japanism podcast. So check out that interview um, for that topic. Yeah, I forget. I'm bad with names, so I forget it. Um, yeah. But no, that that episode is very good. Uh, that has a very powerful ideological effect of uh, you know placing the capitalist state in whatever formation in this case fascism because you're not really going to have um that happen in social democracy where you essentially have a forced confession um and then a uh description of why uh not that not the ways that they were forced to confess but why the forced confession is actually the accurate thing um Mm -hmm. So you have at the same time a normalization of those torture tactics and also a normalization that, uh, you know, communism, because that's what all of these people were, 
Um, mm-hmm. They were communists. You have this notion that communism actually is the wrong idea. Um, mm-hmm. And a very heavy literature of that coming, not from right-wing people or the state who every communist would ignore, but from you know the leaders of the communist groups. Um, yeah. So we it, see that in it, these these excerpts that, that we have here, right? Yeah. Um, especially Kitaiki, Kita who is is a renunciant himself, a renegado, right? Um, <laughs> he has, uh, you know, uh, what he he is very sort of sakdem. Uh, except that what he has this monarchist thing that what guarantees the equality of all the people is the emperor as the patriarch sort of. And then the editors of this uh-huh. volume set that uh, they contrast that to Koktai no Hongi, the, the essence of our national body, right? Or whatever, uh-huh. the second to last text here. Uh but that too has a very communist unconscious, I would argue. That's one of the main things. I want to make sure I say yeah. this. I think this is a cool point. Uh, Kokutai no Hongi was read like very, very widely. It was like a textbook of uh, Japanese fascism. And it's all, and even you know, reading this for the first time, really, I'm recognizing things that older scholars that I have encountered who are very Nihonjin Ronist, like sort of the Cold War discourse of Japanese-ness that exists and why Japan is totally unique and it's not Asian and it, it has to be uh, uh, yeah. forced from Asia and it, it is suited to being a direct ally to the United States. And, uh, but also totally different, totally magical, totally, yeah. And, and there's no class struggle in uh, Japan because yeah, the whole orientalist magical, tropes. Yeah, exactly. Magical Japanese uh, racial essence, uh, and this is where uh-huh. this is where they were getting that. I can see, uh, but the f- really yeah. funny moment comes on page nine seventy one, under the heading of harmony. Uh, right. You you actually had earlier the idea of um, so we don't have class struggle, right? Our relationship between sovereign and subject is by no means a shallow horizontal relationship, such as one implying a correlation between ruler and citizen, uh, but it, it like setting them against each other, right? As a binary, uh, it's almost has this postmodern ring to it. It's like, oh, we don't have that binary. We yeah. have deconstructed that, uh, right? springing from a basis transcending this correlation and is that of dying to self and returning to the one in which the basis is not lost. I can imagine what the Japanese is for that. And I bet there's a better idiomatic <laughs> translation. Um, the, I mean, you don't lose the original, the original principle. It can be a financial term, you know, the original amount of the loan. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't lose it. Moto ga toreru means that you made a profit. You made back the amount that you invested, actually. So fascinating. Um, libidinal thing here. Uh, but then here, the key thing in under harmony, right? Uh, in individualism, it is possible to have cooperation, sacrifice, and the like. And this is what's Western. This is what we need to transcend. So as to regulate and mitigate this contradiction and the setting of one against the other, but in the end, there is no true harmony. That is, a society of individualism is one of clashes between masses of people, and all history may be regarded as one of class wars. Mm. 
So then Marx is right. If but but social structure and political systems in such a society and the theories of sociology, political science, statecraft and so on, which are their logical manifestations are essentially different from those of our country, which make harmony. It makes harmony its fundamental way. We have our, our magical racial essence. Uh, and that's why Marxism is not true. But but if we didn't have that, uh, then, yeah, actually, communism, you have to be communist. They say this, right? This is what it says. This is what it means. Chi 不要说我们一天固执，我们是昨天下的主人。这是最后的斗争，团结起来到明天。I mean, I think it's a really interesting interaction between, you know, holdover of feudal ideas that, you know, mm. everything is from the i guess kingdom or or the the monarch everything is beholden to the monarch everything belongs to the monarch um mm -hmm. and you know what is society but a reflection of the monarch's mm -hmm. uh wants and desires you don't actually have a people you have subjects and we still talk yeah. about people in that way today but you know that was you know divine monarchy divine right and all of that i don't know um how like yeah so if I, the european I, sense of divine right was in japan but i'm sure there was something similar of so know. i would actually say no i know i i thought that was what you're gonna say and really exactly i would actually say this is extremely artificial the emperors of mm. uh, you know no it's it's an interesting thing that um you know, there was the northern and southern courts period. There are all kinds of tangled uh, lineages within the imperial succession. And that's something people, I mean, you can imaginarily say that it's one. But uh, throughout the Middle Ages, the emperors were so poor that they couldn't afford to even hold accession ceremonies. And the shoguns were the ones really running the show. And it becomes something very much oh. like the... Holy Roman Emperor versus the Pope in Europe. And that's that's a um, metaphor that Kitaiki uses. It's really interesting here, right? Okay. He, he pulls that out uh, to explain it. And he 
and and actually during the modernization they had to found a society a department of missions like the the missionary office of the new japanese modern state to go and actually preach to the japanese people to teach them that there is such a guy as the emperor a lot of people had no idea who the <laughs> fuck he even was because he, really he hadn't ruled he hadn't that. held political power since like 1200 or something like you know it's like yeah that's interesting all right that's a new that's a fresh uh thing i have to reckon with with um that's in there too yeah yeah it's very new and and very artificial and and very modern as well this idea of the emperor and is that so is that is that the case in europe the idea of the uh, divine... which part that the well doesn't absolutism yeah. in Europe come from the Mongols? There was a really interesting interview with an author of a book on the dig, on uh, a while ago now, oh. but on the dig there is an uh, yeah, and talking about sort of Mongol Empire and its descendants, right? You have um, the institution of tanistry is something she was talking about a lot. That's interesting, where you don't get just uh, not primogeniture, right? Every generation, the brothers all just fight it out and whoever wins gets to be, uh, right? Because the absolutist monarch is a world-conquering hero. That's where his authority comes uh -huh. from, right? Uh -huh. And so the Habsburgs, right? The Habsburg monarchy absolutely comes from that. Louis, the Sun King, is coming from them in turn, uh -huh. Right. So these ideas of and, you know, if you want to go back, I think we want to I'm really interested in in teasing these layers of like uh, like settler. Um, what would you call it? Uh, the way that settler culture maybe derives from the chivalric romances and sort of we're going wild and going around and conquering. And that's a holy duty that we have to restore this lost uh -huh. civilization that we oh, see ourselves as part there. of. Yeah, Especially but you can when take you get that to even. like the 18. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, especially once yeah. you get to the 1800s, when you like that is no longer hidden, like you just straight up have the white man's burden. Like, <laughs> yeah, a lot of KKK is obvious that they do. Yeah. That yeah. no, we do have a chivalric duty to enlighten. Um, oh yeah, uh, but I, I was going to say you of... can take that even one step further back and talk about the Mongol, uh, the Mongol Empire, right? As one earlier predecessor, you know, you're getting back to the mm -hmm. a whole other like Archaeopteryx kind of ancestor of that, where you have the, yeah. the Golden Horde, right? Of course, that's not a Christian context, yeah. but. Um, interestingly yeah. secular, right? They kind of go back and forth between maybe Buddhist and maybe Muslim. There's a really interesting book. But, well, um, one after. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, go for it. What book? Buddhism and Islam on the Silk Road is a book about that. Huh. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Because once the, you know, the Golden Horde kind of fractured apart, mm. each region, the, the descendant of uh, the Khan, I... Uh, they adopted the kind of major religion. They didn't really bring, they weren't really doing a yeah. war of religion 
on top of yeah, their they didn't care about so that. like yeah that you have the adoption of islam in india and uh what's now iran the mm-hmm. the then persian empire um and you have the adoption of confucianism in china uh yeah. under their kind of uh mogul descendant uh and yeah they just become the yuan the yuan dynasty right of china yeah according to the they just become slot right in there part of it but uh you know it they famously didn't make it over to japan um oh right famously didn't make it into europe um that was kind of you know, Europeans credit themselves with defeating everyone, they defeated the wow, Ottomans that was, and that was mostly Vienna. just because there wasn't shit happening in Europe at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, take. They defeated the the Mongol horde um and all yeah. that nonsense. Um, but you know, for what however it happened or didn't happen, um that kind of you know, secular, as you were saying, that's kind of mm-hmm. secular rule didn't really make it in it was still kind of stronghold of christianity in europe um Mm -hmm. you know which is kind of the basis of all the nostalgia we see today that there's some kind of lost christian morality um yeah that's on that lineage yeah um revanchism for japan too yeah revanchism i know in japan too a lot of the you know right-wing sects today uh are you know yeah. There's the interactions between Christian, like the Christian colonialism that was attempted to happen in Japan, but there's still a a demand for some kind of lost morality to come back. This nostalgia for something that never actually existed. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I love. Um, I, I have an episode on Chushingura, uh, the the kabuki mm-hmm. and puppet play, and uh, the most mm-hmm. popular part of that actually is not performed today at all because if you read it from a modern perspective you know i read it with japanese students they're like what the fuck is this where did you get this why did you have me read this weird part of this play uh where's the part about all the samurai running around with the swords and looking cool uh like they show on tv uh no it's like this gender thing it's all about selling your wife into sexual slavery to get money to buy your way back into the vendetta uh by this main character whose sin was that he was spending too much time with his wife and wasn't at his lord's side during the moment when he was like disgraced and had to commit suicide right so um it's it's hilarious and i compare that to a a uh, video by a nihon ishin no kai the kind of far right party that's getting more and more seats here uh, and he's talking mm-hmm. about you know when you're walking when you're out walking women should walk three steps behind men and the reason for oh, this God. is that when this when the samurai were on the street taking a walk with their wives, uh, which no samurai would be caught dead taking a fucking walk with his wife. Like, what are you fucking gay? Um, you you don't do that. Right. Like um, they would. And then he's you never know when the um, and he uses the term for the the buraku untouchable classes, the untouchable classes might come and attack our samurai. Right. And he might have to take out his sword at a moment's notice. And so if if his beloved sweetheart was standing in front of him 
he couldn't take out his sword fast enough to protect her from the evil un unhuman uh hordes right <laughs> of untouchables um which like taking a walk with your sweetheart is something that japanese converts to protestantism start doing in the 19th century and like yeah. totally new you know so it's an imaginary uh past that is being imagined when and in chushingura it's not even there too you see it's not a marriage is not a relationship between a man and a woman it's a relationship between a father-in-law and a son-in-law and they exchange the daughter for class position and all of this right yeah, yeah. so and that's a great example right there of a fictional past that a fascist yeah. movement is calling back to yeah, and I, I think it's important to see um, you know the not why they're calling back on that, but the 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 purpose of kind of calling back to you know feudal times um, and the romanticization of it because. Uh, you know, yeah. you know, you you have the the intellectual, political class that are you know wholeheartedly for fascism because they like everything in the program, but then, you know, then you have them working on the population. This is the kind of thing Lenin said, like uh, appeal to everyone, and fascists do that. Um, yeah, that's why you had that very weird thing of of. Steve Bannon and Trump's weird disciples calling themselves Leninist. Um, There's, but like relating yeah. all of this weird fascist ideology to the people and what what's happening to people is that they're being ravaged by capitalism. So yeah. to call back to some nostalgia where you know this was pre-capitalist, quite literally. Yeah, using that nostalgia to kind of say like, you know capitalism has broken the family capitalism has broken what it means to be a man your your alienation yeah. is because of these this loss of you know imaginary identity not the hell you go through every day for work um, right and that's how it gets kind of co-opted very easily because people are looking for some kind of yeah you know answer to what what they should be doing um and why things are happening and the answer is you know there's there's some there has been something lost yeah. by you know this the subtext in places outside of Europe is you know parentheses mm -hmm. Western and then yeah. capitalism there's some, there's something lost there um, mm -hmm. even though you know we're we're still using the stories of samurai and, and right nice right. these are not exactly low status peasants. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, we're leaving out all of the people who just suffered under the brutal colonialism in Africa and Asia and the Americas. Yeah, um, it's a classic middle class propaganda technique to center yeah. the default subject on the everyone is an honorary aristocrat, right? Like, yeah, you get mm -hmm. to be a samurai because you're Japanese and that's where you fix your subject position on or whatever your libidinal identification. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think we should be out there doing that legwork uh, ourselves. And what you do is um, say, yeah, you lost your family and 
uh, in a post-capitalist future, you can have even richer, even better, even more deep connection with uh, all kinds of different uh, kinship structures, right? Uh, there is a, yeah. yeah, with and not as a, I'm not bringing this in as like a nostalgic thing, but just as a hint of the kind of things that would be possible under full communism, uh, there is another missionary document from Brazil where a certain Portuguese missionary is is lamenting, you know, you try to explain God to these people and uh, you say, OK, God, God, OK, God is like uh, your father. You know how your father like uh, tells everyone in the family what to do. Right. And he, your mother has to listen to everything he says. If you don't obey him, he can beat you. Uh, this kind of thing. And they're just like, what? No. Oh, mm -hmm. is, does your father do that to you? And you only have one father, <laughs> Jesus. You only have one father. And he sounds like a real piece of shit. Man, I'm sorry. Um, you know, we I have like, you know, this father that teaches me canoeing and this father teaches me to to start, you know, uh, carpentry and everything. Right. And yeah. the, all the various men like I know who my mother, my mother uh, would never obey everything that any man says, because she's like she would be the center of my family. And then like all the men that are her same age are all my fathers. And in varying degrees, you know, I have father type A, father type B, father type C, right? Um, so that's not like less of a family. It's actually way, way bigger, more complex, right? And you could have <laughs> even better, even more deep and, and fulfilling connections with people in a, in a yeah. fully communist world, right? So in that sense, yeah. I don't, you know, I have this doubt that, you know, does it matter what the exact like, um, platonic essence of fascism is if it because it isn't where we want to go uh and i mean i do think it's it's yeah i definitely am very interested in like reconnaissance right in the in the class war and figuring <laughs> out what the ruling class is doing um but what about that objection what about that you could say like oh maybe we don't need to worry about like typologies of this yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the the ultimate goal would be to move away from that, um, but we have to have some kind of actual plat platform to combat it, which right now the left is kind of just, you know. Yeah. I'm going to get pushed back by saying there's no real international left because, you know, everything happening in Venezuela or China or Cuba or Brazil or, you know, all of it or you know, anti-colonial yeah. movements anywhere, Bolivia, etc. You know, the, mm -hmm. the list goes on and on, but these are all happening within their country. There, there's no international mm -hmm. anymore, and this is also sounding nostalgic uh, to a certain extent, but these are, are very mm -hmm. much domestic movements. There's no... Mm -hmm. um, there's, of course, international solidarity, but there's no... Uh, yeah. you know what there once was well um, there's i think that could be is it okay to say that or could be neutral yeah is it okay to say that there's good things to be nostalgic for and bad things because you know the indigenous family is is i think a good thing to be nostalgic for and uh you know an in a robust international um socialist movement but you know being nostalgic for 
uh, crusaders getting to rampage and and share in the plunder of whatever you know geopolitical yeah. struggle. Uh, that that's not a good thing, right? So, and it doesn't actually benefit uh, the people that it claims to benefit. Yeah. So yeah, I would say there's there has to be some distinction between nostalgia and romanticism, where where maybe romanticism is the extreme. Yeah. Which we've been kind of talking about, and nostalgia is some kind of appreciation of the past. Um, Whereas romanticism is the like. We need to go back to the past by any means necessary. Um, right. I mean, well, we know that way to live. we know that we need to be critical and be uh, constantly rethinking, you know, something like um, uh, talk about a co- cosmic pod again. I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> but um, their Stalin series was very helpful for me, just in the sense that it's some smart people who have each read a stack of books on a subject talking about it. <laughs> And you get to I like actually just finish that. Yeah. Yeah. Me and you too. get to hear like, them go through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the very end, I thought the weakest part is at the very end when they start, you know, just really getting into their own territory and start you uh-huh. know, the one, the one person was like, uh, I think we need to call, argue for a kind of theoretical liberalism. I mean, not liberal, but like, you know, liberal, like some other way. So, but I don't know about, so I don't know about that. I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good to get that and be like, oh, this is an Archaeopteryx. This is another kind of Archaeopteryx that, you know, couldn't fly quite, but like, you know, it had, uh, well, it did fly. It did accomplish quite a lot. And, and they, they admit that. Right. Uh, But indeed certain members of that group are like, pushing in different directions i think sometimes oh yeah um, that, that, that that whole episode just drove me crazy uh, mm. we don't have to get into it no but, um well but the so what the point of uh the essence of maybe the what i don't what i didn't like about that um which would be good to have on the table here is the idea a, a kind of pessimism about human nature maybe You know, kind of like, you know, I mean, we do need to think about group dynamics and mass politics. How do these things work? How do people behave in groups? You know, because it does look like the the purges and the the terror, Um, you know, they take on board the kind of Lozordo point that it was a mass movement genuinely on which Stalin acted as a break, if anything. Mm -hmm. Um, They take that on board. Uh, But then where some of the more um, right-wing members of that discussion take that as sort of like, oh, that's just a horrible fact, truth about human nature that I don't want to admit, but I have to realize mm-hmm. that whenever you really have like a serious revolution, everybody goes a little crazy, and so maybe you shouldn't even do it. I don't, I don't think you don't quite say that, but yeah, that's where yeah, a lot they, of they imply. I, I think the, I wouldn't necessarily say right. I would say ultra left. Um, even if they're oh, social yeah. democrats, mm-hmm. because it's it's a huge, and I think this is a problem that you know the left always needs to talk about Stalin is that there's mm-hmm. this focus on you know some kind of great man that either yeah. murdered a million people or single handedly brought this brought the Soviet Union through, and this is the same thing with Mao or, or Castro and uh, Che. Um, yeah. Like these one or two people single handedly brought 
the country to its its left leftist glory or horror, depending on who you're talking to, even in the left. Um, and you know the the they said in the episodes that they were Trotskyist or they liked Trotsky and Bukharin. Um, so you know there was a very clear bias there, but I I think it's you know the the importance of studying any kind of political structure whether or not be fascism because we do overemphasize the importance of hitler um yeah. or mussolini um yeah. you know in the same way that they're like hitler is the definition of fascism in germany where you know hmm. you know that people say that he was uh elected as as a kind of rebuke to uh voting or that people think that like fascism can't come as long as there's a democracy but you know in in that yeah. same kind of argument there's a truth that you know he was popularly elected <laughs> yeah he was yeah, exactly that's hiding the reason, his policies that's the reason a lot of people say japan isn't fascist because there was no takeover of the government by like a a strong fascist party but instead, oh. what happened was just that with all of the terror attacks, um, particularly the League of Blood incident, uh, 515 incident, right, led by Ino Uenisho, um, who was mm -hmm. very spooked up, by the way. That's another element that I want to get to in a minute. But um, so in Japan, there you had the control faction, which was a bit more kind of center right, perhaps. And then you have the Imperial Way faction which is understood normally as far right, right? Uh, oh. And the control faction ultimately wins out. However, they basically win out by adopting all of the demands of the more terroristic, uh, fascistic, oh. imperial way faction. They get, they get their entire way so without like is... winning an election or having a coup. But they did assassinate the prime minister to... Uh, assassinate the sitting prime minister to the approval of 90% of the population. Interestingly. So you get, yeah. yeah I mean, that, that, that's the thing that that's kind of the, the necessity of, of combining an economic argument or economic analysis with the yeah. uh, ideological or political and or political analysis that, uh, you know, I would say the same thing is happening in the U.S. as you just described in Japan. That we're we're getting a uh, you know a, a fascist creep rather than a uh, quick takeover. I I, I agree. Um, on the other hand, I would put on the table as well that I really fuck with the idea that uh, oh, so for example, you, you might know of the popular kind of summary of a lot of scholarship on the. Uh, Nazis, inf American influences legally. Legally, uh, mm -hmm. America. No, Hitler's American model. Right? Yeah, yeah, I read that book. Um, so you know that one. Uh, you know, yeah. I I fuck with that idea Very that good. you know a lot of that comes from uh or just original American settler society, mm -hmm. right? That is an element there, and then also post-war paperclip. Uh, the suburbia, the creation of suburbia, so many things about post-war America are fascist also. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I would say I mean, it I, might go way back, but but also, yeah. yes. I mean, I would, I would 
agree that and and kind of say that fascism is inherently a uh, um all right so let's take a few steps steps yeah i would say that settler colonialism is inherently a step of imperialism and then we can get into mm-hmm. lenin's whole thing about imperialism mm-hmm. um so not going into that for the sake of time yeah fascism is there is then a outgrowth of settler colonialism which you just noted and you know the the kind of whole fascist project was you know in germany and italy we need to take back our lost colonies and you know there could be a whole discussion about the 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 political economy behind that argument um but japan was we need to expand our colonies um and then japan engaged in you know some forms of settler colonialism depending on how we want to talk about uh hokkaido and okinawa and 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 other places but korea and manchuria and Um, brazil yeah and California and Hawaii, uh, colonies they didn't even own. They were also sending settlers to learn uh, the the great book uh, that has finally come out describing this, In Search of Our Frontier by Aichi Azuma, American scholar. Oki no kamome to hikoki no riwa Doko de chiru yarane hateru yaradanchone Ore ga shinu toki hankachi funte Tomo yo kano jo yo ne chone Yeah, they were getting sending people to places like Brazil and America and learning the tool, tricks of the trade, bringing them back and seeding them into the frontier in Manchuria. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of Korean settlers sent into Manchuria and they were working there on like worker mm-hmm. communes, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. They were largely forced though. Eh, um, I mean, I, I know you're talking about the, yeah. They were promised a, about the. They're forced in the same that. way that uh, people were forced in America to go to the frontier really most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's a safety yeah. valve for an urban poor and all of that. I know you're talking about uh, kind of the, the ideological construction of all of that. Uh, but I still think, you know, the majority of, you know, Japanese, it, I'm still unsure about saying that anyone who immigrated here is a settler just because of the... Um, you know yeah well that's yeah that has complicated that. politics um, today you, yeah uh, I, I think it's well, not worth going into really, here well see here's the it kind of is because japan is the ultimate honorary white country you know yeah, that idea of japan's whiteness that's important though 
you know, and uh, for another mm-hmm. thing that I'm writing right now, actually, I'm I'm reading this latest book on Ezra Pound. Finally, someone has gone through Ezra Pound as a fascist and and his obsession with Japan as a fascist and a weeb. He's the original fascist weeb. Uh, oh, it's called Ezra Pound's I'm, I'm Japan. Yeah. Okay. And he was broadcasting on Rome radio for Mussolini. He, you know, uh, called uh, Britain a, a little puppet of the Rothschilds. Uh, you have to, Jesus. yeah, like all of that stuff. You know that that, uh, and and but we mainly, I had mainly heard of him in Japan studies as like, oh yeah, he's the guy who took uh, Ernest Fenollosa's notes on the No Theater and produced the first kind of extended series of translations of no and theorization about it. But when you read it, it's all about how, yes, chivalry is universal because Japan also has it. And it provides this legitimation for his universal stages of, of societal civilizational development. Uh, you know, and he has a lot of fun suggesting actually, yeah, Japan might be ahead of us in, uh, they might be living in the future here because they have uh, such developed uh, chivalric notions. And he waxes really poetic about a certain Japanese fascist film, which has, you know, it's very similar to the Nazi one that I happen to have watched. Shit, what's it called? Uh, I forget the name, but it, it, it it's actually very Orientalist too because it's about this, this bourgeois <laughs> couple and and it has this whole theme about the bodhisattva kanon, the Japanese bodhisattva. He, like, he's just come back from Japan. Uh-huh. It's a German officer in the army. He's just come back from Japan, and he has a statue of kanon that he brought back, or, or a painting, maybe. Huh. And, uh, yes, she's the goddess of uh, mercy and just unconditional feminine forgiveness. And then he has this kind of... Uh, dalliance with his bourgeois neighbor who lives in the palatial mansion next door. Uh, and maybe they knock boots, uh, literal boots, because they're riding horses like a Ralph Lauren kind of advertisement, right? Uh, and uh, then he, but he re- eventually realizes, yes, I have to just uh, be a good German citizen and my Germanness and my my love of the the Reich makes me realize that uh, I'm just going to stay with my wife. And the wife is also a super merciful kind of Kanon Bodhisattva to me. Right. And this is a, there's a very similar film made in Japan where a Japanese intellectual goes to Germany. He falls in love with a German woman and he comes back to Japan huh. and he has to marry now his uh, betrothed wife that his family has kind of set up for him. And he sort of, you know, looks at the flag and recites the Pledge of Allegiance and realizes, yes, I'm going to marry my Japanese wife. And then they go to be settlers in Manchuria and they have their new baby and they sort of look at the flag and they look at the baby and they place the baby upon the soil of the um, empty, the empty land, the terra nullius, uh, where no one lives ever before. And that happy ending right Ezra Pound loves that he loved that film he wrote about it yeah yeah I know that um you know Germany and Italy had a whole ideological project of finding like 
their origin and um their the the like racial origin of people who uh are like them and why the Germans and the Italians are, are the greatest race. There there's uh, uh there's a I think it's the universally this Oh okay. Called yeah, it's called uh, Anti-Empire Project. Uh, mm-hmm. It goes into that kind of stuff in depth, but there, there's like a whole attempt to project um, Germany as as kind of a weird successor to the the origin people. The whole Aryan race mm-hmm. thing was was you know a yeah, lot Aryan of archaeology was funded by that um yeah. in the 1920s by Germany for that specific thing. Hitler um, liked to call Greeks uh, like to call the Germans more like the Greeks, you know. Whereas the <laughs> Italians are like the Romans, we're like the Greeks because we're like he's thinking of like Sparta, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, we have a slave society, but everyone is super buff and running around, you know, exercising all the time. Of course. And Kita Iki had something like this. There was a reference to Greece in one of these. No, that's interesting. One of these thinkers was saying the beautiful Greek, the beautiful Greeks of the Orient. An equal people under... Uh, under a universal sovereign who is somehow not a authoritarian ruler. You know, Kitaiki has this thing about, we're going to reduce the stipend of the emperor and so on. That's another of his little things that he's going to make it a Sakdem kind of limited monarchy. That's what he's basically saying. Well, I mean, the Japan built, uh, modeled their Navy out of, uh, Britain, it seems like they're also trying to model the whole idea of, uh, you know, a parliamentary, quote-unquote, limited monarchy. Um, sort of, but the which, that structure in particular comes from Prussia. And so they don't have, yeah. uh, they have a unicameral legislature that only has the power of the purse. They just approve the budget for whatever mm-hmm. the cabinet has decided. Mm-hmm. And the cabinet is all directly appointed by the emperor. So Kitaiki's, you know, in that context, Kitaiki's proposal of a bicameral legislature, the upper house should be composed of sort of the people who have succeeded in all different fields of society. I mean, it sounds and they would be chosen by the the army again, you know, perpetually. He should Mm -hmm. trust the army to do everything right. And and you trust the army because it's going to be universal uh, conscription, universal fighting force. Mm. Everyone is in the army. Therefore, the army is not a, a class that is above society. Yeah. Right. So the universal militarization element also probably has transnational significance too. Yeah. Uh, that would so be a too. big contrast to neoliberalism though because neoliberalism coincides does it coincide um certainly the after 911 uh i read recently there there's all kinds of statements by george by w at the time saying yeah we're never ever bringing back the draft 
in, in as he was getting the war on terror going. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we're going to have this that. forever war. We're going to be on constant war footing, but never draft. So that's interesting. That's very different. Well, because, uh, you know, if there was a draft, I yeah. doubt that there would be any kind of support. Like the Imperial mm. Project would lose all support from being in a constant, never ending war, the same way that it mm. lost support that way from, uh, you know, yeah. in the rest of the 20th century. I, I remember hearing that. Uh, the discontent among the soldiers during the Vietnam War in the U.S. was so high yes. that it 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 mirrored uh, what was happening in the Russian Empire, which I think is and a bit of an just... exaggeration. Ah, right. Well, that's a that's um, an image that Kitaiki uses as well. He keeps on really? having veiled using veiled references to revolution, saying, you know, oh, it's getting pretty close to what the the corrupt bureaucrats at the end of the Russian empire were, were doing or uh -huh. the, the French, the French society right before the revolution, just saying. Yeah. You know? There's and, this, always been this very weird uh, mm. attempt to call back to what do you call it? Um, attempt to call back to some like failing empire that we need to take as a warning or as a uh, lesson so we don't repeat the mm -hmm. same thing. Decadence. decadence. Yes, exactly. On the topic of Vietnam, uh, that is a whole really fascinating topic to realize how deep that goes. Uh, there is a whole memo from the U.S. Army laying out in great detail how many mutinies were happening. The soldiers were deliberately assassinating their commanding officers and going to join the <laughs> Vietnamese peasants and help with the rice harvest. This was happening a Jesus. lot on a big scale. They were really scared. That was really the, you know, in, in some ways uh, that was the closest America ever came to a real revolution and a real, like, well, I'm sure that if the draft ever happened, that would be uh so in this sense, is Kitaiki right? Maybe it is a dem democratizing influence to have people having military training more broadly. Yeah. It depends on other factors, but yeah, it's potentially. Depends on other factors. If, if you really do get yeah. uh, a system up and running, though, where everybody is a fighting citizen and they really are getting the spoils of empire and we're, we've become a fighting tank just crushing other civilizations under our treads. Well, that's not, that's not good. But, no. Yeah. Okay. And that, uh, that would be another getting... oh, no, definition of fascism, I think. A, a, yeah, or, or part of the wider definition. The, so your man, James at Prolocult films on on YouTube, right? Uh, mm. He's got his documentary on fascism, right? Managed decay is mm. the definition that he likes, right? Where the decay of capitalism, and he, he sort of brings in a lot of stuff about uh, England 
in an, in the beginning of English settler colonialism that it was exporting its decay. There was tons of poverty and stuff. And then also the earliest English colonies, even Jamestown is functioning as a safety valve for decay in England. Uh, but nevertheless, he arrives at the conclusion that's actually different. That's actually not the case. The, the same as fascism. Fascism <laughs> is actually different. Which that's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I I see both sides of that myself. Yeah, that I mean that reminds me of the thing we mentioned very early, very much earlier of uh, you know, the whole authoritarian populism thing by Stuart Hall that uh neoliberalism is a very explicit project that requires a lot of work to make it happen mm -hmm. and if we uh take it at that we might have some things about neo-fascism but uh -huh. um it is getting i don't mean to cut it off here but that might You're, be i'm keeping you up real do. late at night um yeah there's I was one gonna more say thing. It's, it's almost 11 here oh, okay i'm sorry um yeah. let's well, try and get you to bed thing? at a godly hour pretty soon but there's one more thing that that really reminds <laughs> me of that it's another angle here uh which is that fascism in all of these cases had a huge uh ruling class element of of like covert support and deliberate support mm -hmm. right yeah. um it it is an op in in almost every case you know the the first two texts in this collection were by gen yosha which is a secret society uh tr name is translated as the dark ocean society and there were interestingly like hippie communes and stuff in california that took the same name like mysterious ocean society it's like what are you thinking of uh and then the black dragon society uh, which is the one that carried out the assassination of the Queen of Korea, for example. Oh. And in the case of Hitler, there are books. Uh, who funded Hitler? There is uh, the all the books on Crook uh -huh. Steel. Uh, there's there's also Conjuring Hitler, is another academic book on this subject. Uh, and now finally on Mussolini, we had an article in the Guardian that revealed that he got into politics, became a communist because he was a spy for MI6. Yeah, um, I heard about them. He was reporting to British intelligence. And now there's a whole academic book about that as well. And there was many American huh. financiers as well supporting his rise all along. Hitler as well would constantly, you know, be running out of money and he would get a little telegram or whatever you get uh, telling him to oh check out this abandoned parking lot or whatever, and he find a box of you know money and guns and whatever. Um, you know it's not divorced from like Gladio and stuff that we would think of as being or like yeah. uh, you know American funding of jihadist terror or something like that that we would think of later. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. It's uh, all none of this stuff is, is new. In the sense that it, uh, what would you say? Like the CIA is the conclusion and development of the OSS. Mm -hmm. um, like none of this is new. They're just mm -hmm. uh, 
new spins for for the mm. current instance that it's in. So I, I think yeah. in that way, it's British East India Company, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it does. It is new in the sense that it's part of this 500 year world system of white supremacy and colonialism, right? Uh -huh. And capitalism. And in that way, I would I would say I would see a longer gradient kind of reaching back into the into the past and forward after World War II, definitely. I think that that's something I would want to say by way of maybe wrapping up. Yeah. Like after yeah, World War II, I sounds... see that continuing and yeah. Then we have a whole new thing to analyze. Right. On the one hand, you have like Dimitrov. <laughs> so this this fascism was an op stuff would suggest that kind of like Dimitrov was right. Right. His text is uh -huh. all about this is a plot by the, the most reactionary segments of the financial class. Right. Like it's an op is what he's saying. Uh, and on the other yeah. side, you might put Jay Sakai, where, you know, the mm -hmm. shock of recognition, he comes really close to saying almost like fascism is just a totally organic and and natural and like real critique of capitalism that is coming from the middle class. Like it's part of human nature or it's part of some people's human nature and they just always will come up with it. Which, you know, so that would be a yeah. weak, that would be weak if it goes too far in that direction. Yeah. So that's I another agree. axis. I, I think it's too, also too focused on the individual, which, which, uh, it usually leads to the implication that like, well, if we just didn't have these people become into places of power, then fascism or whatever wouldn't mm. develop. Whereas yeah. I, tend to think of it as a uh, uh, political, economic, and ideological project, mm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Prez. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thanks of for course. staying up late with me. Yeah. It it's uh, great to be it's here. Hopefully noon in Tokyo. one of these. I, me oh, too. Boy, I can't wait. <laughs> it's noon in Tokyo, so time to right. go out into the fall air and look for lunch for me. Go enjoy yourself. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> Have a good one. Stay healthy. It's getting colder. You too. Take care. Yeah, I'll try. Everyone listening, stay safe too. Absolutely. All right. All right. Big thanks again to Prez. And check out their work. The, the Minion, as well, is a, a great follow. Like, share, and subscribe over there. And if they ever do start up their Patreon again, kick them some bucks. You know, no matter how frequently they might be uploading episodes, they're doing organizing. And uh, they deserve to make a living, which, uh, you know, given that uh, at least one of them is in grad school, I mean, I'll bet they could use a little help. And as we mentioned during the episode, this is just a bit of a prep session, really, for the Minyan's upcoming episode on fascism. So you got to check that out. I'm Fergal Schmudlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Ansa manshue itano yo. Tep.
ぽんが涙に光ってる。もずいよ、寒いと泣くなえ。あんさんもっと寒いだろう。